The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. I do not see this as a bailout for Milwaukee by the state. I see this as giving them the tools to solve their own issues. Milwaukee takes center stage in the debate over local government funding. New federal protections for pregnant workers are set to take effect in June. And tis the season for ticks. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, what people of Milwaukee think about plans in the legislature for the state's largest city. We look at details in the landmark Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. And as you head outdoors, what you need to know about ticks this season. It's Here and Now for May 26. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. At the state capitol this week, lawmakers from the Senate considered their version of the shared revenue bill to increase funding to local governments as the very survival of the bill hangs in the balance. The tipping point? Whether or not to bring a referendum question before Milwaukee voters to increase the sales tax by 2% for the city of Milwaukee and by 0.375% for the county to pay for outstanding pension obligations that have been growing for years. Last week, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said their version of the bill requires the referendum and they are done negotiating. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue took issue with that, concerned that the referendum could fail. Speaking before the Senate committee this week was Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson. He joins us now, and Mayor, thanks very much for being here. Frederica, thanks for having me. So from your understanding, where does this shared revenue bill stand as of this moment? Is there room for negotiation? Uh, Frederica, you know, I I would imagine that there is room for negotiation. Um, look, I've not had the, the, the ability, the privilege to serve in a bicameral legislative uh, body uh, such as we have uh, in our uh, state legislature. But my understanding though, is that one house uh, creates a bill and if there's any difference with the other house, they come together, they conference the bill, that's negotiation. Um, and so I would suspect that there still would be room uh, for both the assembly as well as the Senate uh, to have the opportunity to to have a conversation and and put forward a bill that can pass both houses uh, that can get the support that it needs in the legislature that can also be signed by the governor. What are you uh, specifically lobbying for? Uh, look, uh, in the bill, there are a number of things that I've been lobbying for. Uh, you mentioned the uh, issue about whether it's a referendum or whether it's enabling legislation allowing uh, for both the Milwaukee Common Council uh, as well as the Milwaukee County Board to pass uh, legislation uh, and then to be signed by the executives in those jurisdictions, uh, myself being one of them. Uh, look, I I'd like for there to be consistency here. Uh, when the state of Wisconsin allows local governments to implement uh, or increase a tax, uh, whether it's a, a county sales tax, a 0.5% uh, sales tax that 68 of our 72 counties have implemented, uh, those happen by a simple majority of the legislative body. They are not sent out to referendum. When the state of Wisconsin allows local governments to enact a Pratt tax, a premier resort area tax, uh, those are imposed via a vote of the local legislative body. They are not sent out to 
the, the masses via referendum. So I'm looking for consistency here uh, from the state legislature in allowing us to implement a 2% sales tax in the city of Milwaukee, allowing the common council to be able to vote on that. And then me as the executive of this jurisdiction to be able to sign that into law and to implement it. Uh, there are some other uh, Milwaukee specific uh, items uh, in the bill. And you know, my request uh, has been um, uh, on those things to allow local officials to make those decisions that purely affect us at the local level. What are your concerns about uh, taking that extra 2% sales tax to voters? Do you think it wouldn't pass? I have grave concerns about whether or not a referendum would be able to pass in Milwaukee. Um, uh, I've got a, a number of concerns about it. The, the, the question, I think, posed would be too large, too overly confusing, too uh, overly cumbersome uh, for us to be able to educate the public about the dire need uh, that's available here. Uh, and then there are a couple of other reasons why I've got you know severe concerns. Um, in the city of Milwaukee, in years past, uh, what we had done before we implemented a, a wheel tax that's you know 20 bucks a year that folks pay when they register their vehicle, uh, we essentially had a referendum when the Department of Public Works would go uh, to a particular street in the city to reconstruct that street. Uh, we would send out a postcard to the residents on that block and say, hey, uh, we're coming to reconstruct the street. Uh, it's gonna cost you say $3,000 roughly. Uh, that was a referendum and uh, folks would vote those down consistently because uh, they wouldn't wanna pay the, the additional uh, dollar. Uh, what happened though was then that we would have a street and several streets throughout the city that would be reduced to gravel, right? So there are those sort of concerns about a referendum. We need the money to be able to do these things, uh, to be able to provide city services, just like we did before with fixing the street. Um, the other thing that I have a grave concern with is that in Milwaukee, talking about issues around pensions, uh, I think is sort of taboo. Now folks recall uh, you know, about two decades ago or so, um, some of the challenges that happen around pensions in Milwaukee. And I don't want you know those bad feelings from the past um, to be intermingled with what we need to accomplish here right now in terms of getting more revenues uh, to us at the local level so that we can maintain services uh, here in the city of Milwaukee, including making sure that we uh, maintain and increase police service, that we maintain and increase uh, fire service, uh, and also that we maintain uh, our library system that means so much to citizens all across the city. What is your message um, to the people of the state about how dire things are uh, fiscally in Milwaukee right now in the absence of any kind of even overall boost uh, in shared revenue from the state? Well, Frederica, what happens in Milwaukee has an outsized impact on the rest of the state of Wisconsin. It really, really does. I mean, you, you think about the services that we provide here, uh, they are good, uh, not just for my constituents, the residents in the city of Milwaukee, uh, they're good for our regional economy. And we've got you know thousands of people who drive into the city each and every single day uh, for work and for dining uh, and the like. Um, and from the uh, Waukesha, Ozaki, Washington County uh, suburbs, um, we in the city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee generally, uh, we're the largest tourism destination in the state of Wisconsin, about a quarter of all tourists who interface with our state and then therefore pay sales taxes that go to Madison and then are diverted to other communities uh, around the state. They come to Milwaukee, right? 
uh, and experience uh, the, the, the hospitality, the tourism uh, that we have uh, here in the city. And then, of course, uh, some of the most iconic businesses in the entire state of Wisconsin are located right here in the city of Milwaukee. Now, if we're not able to provide those sort of city services that all of those constituencies depend on, uh, that would put us in a situation, uh, I think a dire situation, uh, where those visitors don't come, where those businesses perhaps uh, decide to leave. Um, and if those things were to happen, the ripple effect doesn't just happen in the city of Milwaukee. It happens in the region and it happens in other parts of the state of Wisconsin as well. All right. Uh, we leave it there. Mayor Cavalier Johnson, thanks very much. Rodrigo, thanks for having me. Others in Milwaukee are an unequivocal hard no on this proposal. Our next guest says this deal in the legislature fails Milwaukee by overinvesting in police and taxing the poorest residents. Devin Anderson is campaign director of the African American Roundtable, and thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So your organization is highly critical of this shared revenue plan as it affects Milwaukee. In your mind, what is the worst of it? Yeah, all of it is pretty bad, but I think if you look at it um, in its totality, the provisions that it places on Milwaukee in particular, um, bringing cops back into school, our, our friends at Leaders Igniting Transformation have led really strong organizing uh, to get cops out of school. If you look at just the continued investment that Milwaukee would have to make into policing, part of the reason Milwaukee's in the problem, the budget problem that it has is because of its overinvestment in policing. And so this bill doubles down on that investment. And we haven't even gotten to the 2% sales tax. Um, that's a regressive tax and a regressive tax disproportionately impacts the poorest residents. And that's something we're against. People in Milwaukee, residents of Milwaukee, are already struggling to make ends meet. And adding a 2% sales tax when they're really getting no increase in services is, is a bad deal. So do you think city residents would uh, consider voting to approve a 2% sales tax that goes to pay for police pensions? No, I think the answer is no. And I think that's why we've seen the pivot from the leadership at the city and the county um, asking for this to be approved um, via the respective legislative branches rather than going to referendum. I think people in Milwaukee have an understanding and don't want to see any of their services cut. But what they know is they don't want to be forced to pay additional revenue and not see any expansion in, in services. What do you think about um, the the bill as as uh, introduced, including that referendum? Uh, you know, taking the two percent sales tax to voters, uh, whereas that is not required elsewhere. Yeah, I think our position is still we're going to oppose a two percent sales tax. One thing we want to continue to lift up is that uh, Wisconsin has a $7 billion surplus, right? So instead of asking voters in Milwaukee to, to dig deeper into their pockets to, um, to pay to maintain services, the state should write the check. Um, over the last years, and I know a lot of folks have talked about it, everybody always says Milwaukee is the economic engine of the state, but Milwaukee doesn't receive its fair share of shared revenue. 
our position and what we've fought for over the last years has always been more investment into our communities. Since we launched our campaign in 2019, Liberate MKE, that's been central to our demands that our communities need more. They need more access to public health. They need longer hours at the libraries. They need their roads to be repaired. But our vision of how we get there is not to increase taxes on the poorest people of Milwaukee, is not to sign deals that continue to add to more police. And instead, it's it's demanding that the state give its fair share back to the residents of Milwaukee who provide so much to, to the state of Wisconsin. What concerns uh, do you and others have that in the kind of wrangling about the, the process and the specifics of this bill, that the whole thing could go down and then and then Milwaukee and, and other local governments don't get this sorely needed boost? Yeah, I think our concerns always lie within our residents. For too long, like right, the residents we've talked to have noted that they already don't see the impacts of city government. And so our concerns is like lifting up their voice and naming right now that like, we can't sign this deal just because it's the only deal on the table. We have to ask for more, we have to demand more. Our communities deserve so much more from government and we like we have to be demanding that and not accepting the scraps left on the table for us. Uh, are your voices being heard in all of this? No, <laughs> no they aren't. I think we've made it loud and clear the last years throughout the city budget process that actually what Milwaukee residents want is they want to see more investments into programs like public health. They want to see their libraries expanded. They want to see less money spent on police. But instead, we continue to see status quo budgets. We continue to see elected officials making excuses around why folks can have always talked about how Milwaukee's going towards this financial cliff. But we've never seen any changes in terms of their investment and their support for police and policing. And so for us, it's like, you know, city leadership will talk about like how previous administrations have led us to this moment, but actually their administration and the budgets they passed last year have continued to push us towards this moment. And we shouldn't be asking Milwaukee's poorest residents to bail us out in this moment. Devin Anderson, we leave it there. We appreciate hearing your voice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Last August, Walmart employees in Wisconsin, represented by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, lost a federal court case that tried to argue pregnant workers, like workers injured on the job, should receive temporary light-duty work. Now, a new federal law requiring reasonable accommodations for pregnant workers takes effect next month. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed in December as part of the Trillion Dollar Inflation Reduction Act. For more on what's being called a landmark new law taking effect June 27, we turn to Sharon Tajani, Associate Legal Counsel at the EEOC. And thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So in your mind, how big of a game changer is this for pregnant workers? Well, it's going to be an important change for pregnant workers. Right now, under certain laws, pregnant workers can get accommodations, but it can be difficult. And this week gives pregnant workers a direct way to get an accommodation. Of course, what this provides for is accommodations as long as they don't cause an undue hardship. So it's not an automatic thing that a pregnant worker will get an accommodation, but rather something they can get 
discuss with their employer and see what works. So what will the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act require specifically in terms of those accommodations? What are some examples that a pregnant woman could seek? So when you look at what Congress was talking about when it was passing this law, some of the accommodations they were talking about were incredibly simple things. Things like carrying around a bottle of water, um, additional breaks to go to the bathroom, a stool if you normally have to stand during when you take when you're doing your job, um, and like telework, leave to recover from childbirth, and occasionally having parts of your job excused because because of your pregnancy you're unable to do them. Something like heavy lifting. It, it seems kind of incredible that there would need to be a federal law. Uh, to have these accommodations in the workplace? Well, yes, but there did need to be one. Um, some employers obviously provide these kinds of things to their employees as a matter of course. And in certain types of jobs, you know, if you work in an office, for example, or lawyers, for example, who work at a law firm, the idea that they would need a federal law in order to be able to carry water around with them, of course not. Most people who work in offices are able to do that. But different kinds of jobs have certain rules. And for those kinds of jobs, this is going to be a very important thing for pregnant workers who up until now didn't have a direct path in order to get these kinds of accommodations. How does a pregnant worker prove limitations requiring uh, accommodation? I is pregnancy itself a known limitation? Well, the statute says that it ha a known limitation is a physical or mental condition related to arising out of or affected by pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. So there aren't specific examples within the statute, but when you look at what Congress was talking about, they were talking about things like I said, you know, carrying around a bottle of water, something that might you, you might need in order to keep healthy while you're pregnant, and also something that you might need, for example, if your ankles are swelling and you need to sit down. So it could be any of those things, but what's important to understand is that it seems that they were aiming at kind of simple things that shouldn't be a big change in how the workplace is functioning, but rather what will make it easier for a pregnant worker to do their job. Are all pregnant workers covered under this law? They are covered if they work for a covered employer, and those are employers that have at least 15 employees and the federal government. Uh, what if an employer, and, and you spoke to this earlier, says the accommodation causes them undue hardship? What constitutes undue hardship, and, and does that represent some kind of a, a loophole whereby pregnant workers would, would not be able to get these accommodations? I don't think it's a loophole. It's a defense. If you can show, the employer can show that it would cause significant difficulty or expense, then the employer does not have to provide the accommodation. And so it's, it's, it balances the needs of the pregnant workers and the needs of the employers, although what the employer has to show is a significant difficulty in ex or, or expense. And given the simple accommodations that might be necessary, hopefully that won't be what the employers are saying. How does an employee assert their right to these accommodations under this law? Well, the employer only has to accommodate things that it knows about. So in the first step, it's the employee saying, I need an accommodation and this is why. And then the law talks about using something called the interactive process, which is something that's from the Americans with Disabilities Act, where the employer and the employee just can talk or email or somehow communicate about 
what the employee needs and what the employer can give. What has happened to pregnant workers uh, before this law that, that really uh, required it to be put in place? So pregnant workers were often faced with a very difficult choice. They could either keep their paycheck or do something that either caused them pain, that they couldn't do because of their pregnancy, or that they thought put their pregnancy or the, their own health at risk. And with this law, absent undue hardship, hopefully that won't be happening. All right. Well, we appreciate your expertise on this. Uh, Sharon Tajani, thanks very much. Thank you very much. In other news, tick populations in Wisconsin have been growing slowly for decades. This spring, however, new and early activity has the attention of scientists who study these tiny carriers of disease. Marissa Wojcik took a walk in the woods with UW entomologist and director of the Upper Midwestern Center of Excellence for Vector-Borne Disease, Susan Paskowitz, to learn more. We're seeing more ticks in more places. Susan Paskowitz's job is to seek out the crawling creatures that make the rest of us cringe. Ticks. They've invaded a lot of locations in the state where we didn't used to be able to find them. And that's particularly down in the southern quarter and then uh, the eastern, say, quarter to third of the state. The immature stages are usually going to be really low, so down here in the leaf litter, they may be up on some of this vegetation. And our research really focuses on what increases people's risk of exposure, and then two, what can we do about it? She drags her white canvas over the forest floor to find these minuscule parasites. They are very much associated with wooded locations and the research points to a growing population. 10, 20 years ago, maybe 50 of the 72 Wisconsin counties had an established population of deer ticks, and now there's only one county where we don't find them. While that growth has taken decades, this spring, there's a new development. One new thing we've seen this year is earlier activity of the juvenile stage that we call a nymph or as she also referred to them, teenager ticks. The nymphs are the most important stage in terms of disease transmission. And we think that that's because they're so much smaller than the adult deer ticks. Deer ticks are the smallest and most commonly known to spread Lyme disease. Adult deer ticks are big enough so that you're going to feel them when they're crawling on you usually, or even if you don't, when you're checking your body, you may feel a little lump, and so you recognize and you can remove those quickly. The nymphs, though, they really don't trigger any kind of a response. You don't feel them moving on you, and they're so small, like the size of a, a poppy seed or a small freckle, that they are actually hard to detect on your body. The earlier activity of the nymph means more chances to spread Lyme. And this year we saw nymphs uh, in middle May for the first time. So a good week to two weeks before we usually begin to pick them up. And uh, that is probably related to warmer springs, warmer temperatures, and they're getting active earlier. In terms of Lyme disease, which is the disease that we see the most human cases in our state, We've been seeing a, a kind of a steady increase. Um, I think last year it was over 4,000 cases that were reported to the state. Lyme disease is usually spotted by a telltale sign, 
For people who get a, a bullseye rash at the site of the tick bite, or doesn't always look like a bullseye, but a large rash there, it's not hard. A doctor will know right away what that is and how to treat it. To help the human tussle with ticks, they're using technology. The Tick App is a research tool that we developed to both educate people and learn more about where ticks and Lyme disease are being found. You'd have this option if you did get any ticks on you to take pictures, send them directly to the scientists. We can identify them, give you an estimate for how long the tick has been feeding, and then make some suggestions about what you might want to do as your next steps. It also has some really great information in it that you could use to um, identify the tick yourself. And perhaps one day, harness machine learning to identify ticks. In the meantime, researchers like Paskowitz are also learning about humans. Some of the things that we've learned from our tick app tool are that people maybe don't really realize where they're being exposed to ticks. An adult tick wouldn't be on you for more than a week, seven days, and yet we have people telling us that they picked up ticks in places that they visited a couple weeks ago. And many people are imagining that it's when they go to their cabins or it's when they're out in the woods hiking um, instead of in their own yards. In spite of all this, she says that doesn't mean you can't still get outdoors. We certainly want people to be out enjoying our beautiful woods in Wisconsin and not to be afraid to do that because of ticks. But they should just take the precautions to make sure that they, their kids, their pets are protected. Wearing light colored clothing so that if you get a tick on you, you'll be able to see it against that background. If you potentially have some ticks that are on the clothing that maybe you didn't, don't see, if you put them in the dryer at a high temperature for 20, 30 minutes, that'll take care of that. We also recommend that people use a repellent, and that can be the same kind of repellent that you use for mosquito um, prevention. And then do a shower. You're just removing anything that might be on your person, perhaps not yet attached and trying to feed. Reporting from the woods, I'm Marissa Wojcik for Here and Now. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.